Hello and welcome to episode 300 of Today in Space, which is crazy. Can't believe we're at 300. And, you know, each time we've hit like the hundreds, we've done kind of a special episode. And, you know, 100 was with uh, some of my friends. We talked about a lot of fun stuff and, and talked about our different science dif- disciplines. We also had a few drinks. Uh, and then 200, we had Julia Kaliski on, it was in the middle of the pandemic and we were, uh, both talking about STEM and art and being creative and productive in the middle of the pandemic. And now we're at 300 and the, one of the topics that we've been following here for a while is the, you know, the ever closing entrance of space becoming a domain of all things, including war. And we've seen that with Starlink and Ukraine and, and, uh, other countries destroying satellites, which is then creating, you know, as a, as a ballistics demonstration. And then that debris is now potentially causing issues like the Soyuz that got hit by a micrometeoroid. It's very plausible that, one of these satellite destruction demonstrations were the cause of that. And then there's obviously the increasing orbital uh, debris, but also payloads that are that are out there. Starlink is, is starting to uh, gain in numbers, and then there's plenty of other companies like Amazon and OneWeb that are going to be adding more Constellation satellites. So the... The idea of space becoming a domain of war and one that is going to be policed potentially, uh, uh, personally, I was definitely struggling with it. You know, uh, the the way that space is tied inevitably to defense and war. You know, the V two rocket and um, the race to the moon. like there's so much that's that's in the past but there's also so much good that's come from it so as we're in this strange time where space becomes more a part of uh, a, a domain that is going to be looked at to be conquered uh by one or another or we find some way for all of us to play well together and allow humanity to have access to space and we had the opportunity to talk to the CEO of Arcfield, Kevin Kelly, and his unique background in telecommunications and intelligence and defense. And you know, Arcfield is a company that works specifically to uh, give the unfair competitive edge to the U.S. in the domain of space and cybersecurity. So it was really interesting to get his perspective on this. Uh, I, I think I've voiced my opinion on this, I'm definitely pro allowing humanity to continue to explore space and survive and not nuke each other. I'm very pro that. Uh, but I also wanted to get the side uh, from someone who's in the industry, who's has a STEM background, who can speak uh, as a person of science um, and not necessarily as a delegate or someone who's like on the news. So, I really like these long form conversations. I was very honored to talk to Kevin uh, and about talk about Arcfield and the type of people that work there. Uh, it definitely lo- seems like a great place to work for the right person. And um, 
uh, just a great conversation about all things space with Kevin Kelly. He has 30 years of experience and uh, it was a true joy to talk to him. So please enjoy this conversation for episode 300, talking about both deep topics like war and cybersecurity and and national defense, but also about humanity and uh, about ultimately freedom for all of humanity and what can be done at the space level to do that. So uh, definitely had a great time with this one. Please enjoy our conversation with Kevin Kelly, the CEO of Arcfield. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Today in Space. I am your host, Alex G. Orfanos, and we're here for another episode of People of Science, where we talk to people in the industry, we talk about what they're doing in their day-to-day, and what got them to choose to work in this gauntlet of, uh, of work that is STEM. Uh, and this week, we have the CEO of Arcfield, Kevin Kelly. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on today and speaking with us. I'm glad to be here, Alex. Kevin, tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us an intro into who you are, and then give us a, a little background into what got you into, into the STEM field. Sure. So uh, I've spent the bulk of my career, 30 years now, supporting um, telecommunications, uh, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and uh, the development of microelectronics packages for the use in the national security and intelligence community. Um, I've I, I grew up as a um, STEM-interested kid, uh, the type of kid that took every gift that I got uh, for Christmas or my birthday apart because I wanted to see how it worked. Uh, I remember when my parents, when I was 10 years old, they bought me a really nice bicycle. And uh, the agreement that my father uh, made with me when he bought the bicycle was that I was not allowed to take it apart. And that lasted for about a day and a half before <laughs> I... I had the whole back, back sprocket off and I wanted to see the ball bearings and I wanted to, to take it all apart. Most things went back together, not everything, but I must say I'm, I'm, I'm just a gearhead at heart. I'm, I'm the type of person that just wants to know how something works and if I can't figure it out. The good thing is there's a, there's the grand old internet and I can go out and, and find out at, uh, at least at a cursory level, how things work. And it, it's just been something that I've been interested in. I went to a school at Penn state, did my undergraduate degree in electrical engineering went on to uh, the George Washington University where I earned my master's in systems engineering and engineering management. Um, I've just been in, in an engineering capacity and, and discipline throughout the, my entire career and now have the, the pleasure and privilege of running Arcfield, which is a, a company filled with uh, engineers and scientists all focused on solving some pretty important problems for the national security and intelligence community. Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to pull out a little thing I have here from your team. Um, you know, Arcfield is there to solve the most complex and demanding national security and space-related challenges for its customers across the U.S. Department of Defense, U.S. federal civilian agencies, and the Canadian Air Fo- Royal Canadian Air Force. Um, could you tell us, uh, I guess we've got that brief picture of Arcfield, but it sounds like this hub of just innovation and development um, of technology, and I think I was reading you guys are also looking at future problems that people that you have <clears throat> as customers might be might need in the near future. 
Yeah, we're 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 certainly not all things to all people. We we focus our efforts in the national security and intelligence domain, uh, principally for the U.S. government and to a lesser extent the Royal Canadian Air Force. Um, at a high level, uh, what we do is engineering, modeling, simulation, uh, test, and launch for uh, national security satellite systems. That includes the the design of the the architecture, uh, orbital mechanics, orbital modeling, uh, modeling the interaction between next generation spacecraft and, and previous generation spacecraft. Uh, everything from you know antenna deployment to communications, link closure analysis, um, anomaly resolution, that's everything from the physical to the electrical um, domains. And um, pretty much everything having to do with the, the building deployment and operations of overhead satellite systems. Um, the other two major areas where we have significant practice are in uh, ballistic missiles and hypersonic missiles. Again, modeling, simulation, a lot of uh, model-based systems engineering, digital engineering to um, design and test the next generation um, hypersonic and, and conventional ballistic missile systems. We're not a weapons manufacturer. Uh, we're more on the engineering and the physics and material science side. Mm. Uh, the third thing we do is, is cybersecurity. And in uh, cybersecurity can mean a lot of things to, to uh, many people. On, in our domain, it involves creating um, solutions that allow disparate security levels uh, uh, to operate um, seamlessly with one another in an autonomous fashion. So think about networks like the internet, which are completely unclassified and kind of in the wild, wild west, and then things that are government networks that are very uh, prescribed and locked down and very have very rigid boundaries. We build autonomous systems that allow information to traverse between the two without having sensitive information leak out onto the internet accidentally and without uh, allowing malware or nefarious activity to leak in to the uh, proprietary systems of the government from the internet. And uh for satellite technology and things that are going into orbit, and I guess even the prep to launch from a cybersecurity perspective, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot that's involved in that. There's a lot more these days than there used to be, for sure. <laughs> um, you know, that when you think about space-based systems, those who aren't familiar with them think they're uh, in, a, in a world of their own, in a class of their own. In reality, the compute systems, the memory systems, the collect systems, the radios, um, the, the, the packet radio that packetize all the information, digitize all the information, their kins exist here on, in the terrestrial networks. They're, they're not terribly unique. What makes them unique is their ability to be serviced at a great distance, uh, their ability to withstand radiation and high shock and vibe, um, wide swings in, in um, thermal, thermal environments. But the, the inner workings of those systems are very similar to the ones that we use here every day on, on Earth and, in, and at sea and in other environments, meaning they have the same vulnerabilities. They have the same uh, cyber vulnerabilities of the systems that we use every single day at work. So um, when you think about the um, satellite systems of old, I'm going back to the beginning of my career, maybe 30 years ago, they were pretty proprietary, pretty unique. They're um, their brethren did not exist in the terrestrial networks. They mm. were kind of you know, specific, mission specific. Nowadays, a lot of the components are dual use components and 
Therefore, we have to care for those vulnerabilities uh, the same way we do in terrestrial networking. Mm. It, it's it's amazing how, you know, when I went to school for aerospace engineering, one of the things that was uh, very much the mantra was, you know, flight-proven hardware only. And there really wasn't a lot of room for uh, developing a lot of new tech because there wasn't a lot of money in the industry, so you had to use it wisely kind of thing. Um, but as we get closer and, and farther, we're seeing demonstrations like Starlink uh, mm -hmm. across the earth, especially in Ukraine recently. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like there's a push to update where it's where it's needed, update technology. Um, do you guys see that at, at an intersection at Arcfield? Um, have you guys been on, I guess, how, how does that work with you guys having been in the industry for so long? You know, we, we see we see a cross section of, of two markets. We see the national security space, which is still um, a, a very um, uh, they they apply a very rigid discipline of systems engineering and risk management, mm -hmm. as you would anticipate in any militarized system or any any system that was used for continuity of operations, continuity of governance, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So um, there's there are um, a lot there's a lot of attention paid to building fail-safe systems, those with high reliability, high availability. Um, therefore, they cost a lot. They take longer to develop. Uh, there's a lot more care placed in the uh, risk assurance prior to launch and during launch than you would see in commercial systems. Um, that being said, they have to interoperate with those commercial systems more right. and more. And so, so that's where we see that cross-section. Uh, I love the fact that you know, between SpaceX and Amazon and a few others, they've brought the launch costs down dramatically, you know, mm. orders of magnitude cheaper than it used to be, which has allowed for a lot more experimentation, allowed for less expensive satellite systems with shorter lifespans um, to enter into the space domain. And um, it, it provides us in the national security domain more more tools in the tool chest, more, uh, you know, more blades on that Swiss army knife. So there's more capability that we can take full use of. Uh, but at the same time, it does not relieve us of our responsibility to make sure that our systems are there 100% of the time, especially when, you know, when uh, the United States and our allies need them the most. Mm. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, as you were talking about the how successful these need to be and how with how uh, locked in and secure they need to be and stable it makes me think of uh, I went to uh, in the early days of me working in aerospace I went to a conference it was a material science conference but they're talking about the uh, the success rate of safety of you know commercial airliners and how impressive it was to have such a high level of of safety and, and I'm sure that that same thing is carried over to to, to your industry and, and what Arcfield does. Absolutely. Um, particularly in, I mean, in everything that we do, frankly, um, as we, as we were speaking about, um, the space domain, the, the number of tests and models and simulations and failure events that are modeled prior to launch, prior to satellite integration, even into the payload fairing is sometimes mind boggling. And, mm. um, at the end of the day, we need to make sure that this, in some cases, they're very ordinary payloads. In other, in other cases, they're very exquisite payloads that have very specific mission applicability. And we as a team, 
government, contractor, military alike, need to make sure that these systems make it into orbit and that they're successful. The taxpayer trusts us to spend their money wisely. Uh, as I said before, it is a costly endeavor and uh, therefore sometimes a year or two of, of uh, mission assurance and risk reduction activities is performed while the satellite is going through its final acceptance testing, while it's going, going through integration testing. You, you won't find that in, in the commercial domain, these mm. small sets. And it doesn't mean one's better than the other. They, they, they're right. there to serve different purposes. Um, not uncommon for, you mentioned you know, um, the Starlink, it's not uncommon for, for them to put 80 or 100 of those small sats into you know, payload fairing for deployment on a single launch. And if 20 of them don't make it to orbit, it's a shame but right. this network's going to keep operating and they'll be able to fill in the holes just mm. by doing some orbital maneuvering. It, it, it makes me think of how intense of this, this job is and, and the process of putting something into space. And it's something that having someone like yourself with your experience, I, I'd love to ask this question and, and kind of get your thought on the approach. You know, uh, we talk a lot about the SpaceX approach, kind of the, uh, fail hard, learn faster, kind of, we can deal with these 20 not working. Can you give me an insight into the thought process of of where the line is for you guys, of how much testing you do, and where do you finally say, we feel comfortable with the risk we've assessed, and, and we can we can proceed? It starts at the engineering level, and um, when we when we look at designing, say, for instance, a military payload or, or, or uh, an intelligence payload, um, there's uh, a great deal of care put into a making sure that its you know, function is something that uh, is not observable by the adversaries, making sure that its uh, cyber vulnerabilities are identified early and are cared for, uh, making sure that, it, that we provide an ability to do software upgradable componentry wherever possible. Uh, and then, um, you know, when, when uh, the military designs anything, uh, they, they talk about four nines available, five nines available. Those systems are just, you know, not worth the money generally in, in the commercial domain, save for, for a moment, the, the telecommunications main core infrastructure that tends to be very highly uh, available and highly reliable, but everything else is viewed as as dis, you know disposable or replaceable, or um, it's perfectly acceptable if it operates in a degraded state because there's a multitude of objects that are going to take over the processing or the communications or the uplinks or the downlinks. Again, when when you're building these um, national security systems, they're so unique in the functions that they perform. It's not conceivable, both economically and from a mission standpoint, to build a dozen of them. It's more right. likely we're going to build three or four of them. And, and therefore, the, the, if you start to do the math and you do failure rate analysis and you look at mean time between failure of individual componentry, you very quickly find yourself into um, you know, building redundant systems and overly redundant systems to make sure that they operate when you need them the most. I don't have a good answer for where's the clear line. Um, I, I rarely see national security systems or military systems that that don't have very stringent availability requirements and reliability requirements, and therefore it it drives us into a, a much more rigorous systems engineering practice. Yeah, no, thank you. The thought process alone that you described is is what I was looking for. So that's amazing. Let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Manscaped. If you go to manscaped.com, you can get 20% off anything in the store, 
by using the code word SPACE. Since the beginning of this year, we've been using the new Beard Hedger that uh, Manscaped made, which has multiple different settings. Basically, the blade moves to the guard itself. And if anyone's had a beard trimmer or razor that's had like all those different head pieces that changes the length that the hair goes away from the blade, it's such a pain. There's so many pieces. I mean, think about how much plastic is made every time a razor is made. And there's so many of those cheap ones that you find when you're on the road and you forgot the thing that you needed to to shave or trim your beard. The Beard Hedger is doing it right. Uh, I love the thing. I'm all the way up to uh, six uh, millimeters on the on the wheel. So uh, slowly growing my beard. I have this like spot around my chin, uh, kind of like below my lower lip, like the goatee area. That like gets like really agitated when the beard hair grows. I just have thick Greek hair, and so I love the Lawnmower 4.0 because that just was able to handle like that legit Greek hair. And now with the beard hedger, I have so many options with my beard and it's quick. That's the great thing. That's what I love about Manscaped is it's quick. They give you everything you need to take care of manscaping yourself and taking care of yourself. You look good. You feel good. My beard has never been as comfortable as it's been. It used to get like really itchy and scraggly, but with the comb and the the beard oil, which I love, I got to get more of. Uh, I've got to go on manscaped.com to pick up some more stuff. Uh, they've got some great stuff. The Beard Hedger Pro kit gives you a ton of stuff. Uh, if you want to go on that beard journey with me, I think we're going to try the Riker here soon. Uh, we're going to go for the, the Lieutenant Riker and uh, and see how close we can get that. Uh, we got to have a space theme with this, but this thanks to our sponsor at Manscaped, you can get 20% off at manscaped.com. If you use the code word space, that's 20% off anything in the store, free shipping. And if you're on, if you're on the beard journey, join me with the beard hedger pro kit. Um, but they have so much more there. If you're looking for anything for your, uh, your grooming needs, that's manscaped.com code word space, 20% off free shipping. Thank you, Manscaped for being a sponsor. And now back to the episode. Uh, to tell me about the people that you work with, like, are I'm sure you must have a a very interesting set of background skills as a team uh, that's necessary. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Like, what makes a good team at at Arcfield? Yeah, I think um, you know I meet with all of our uh, first of all with all of our employees in in town halls, like like most CEOs would do on a quarterly basis. But more importantly, I meet with every new employee that comes in. Uh, every Monday. So we start between five and 15 people every single Monday. And um, we, we introduce people into the company. Most of them come from uh, one of three places, one uh, former military service. And we love the fact that we're more than 25% veterans. And and I'll say why in a moment, the relevance there, it's not just the fact that they're veterans Um, or they come from government service. They served in a civilian agency and in a in defense capacity or in an intelligence agency, or they're coming from one of our competitors that are, you know, good companies that that do a lot of similar engineering, whether it's material science or chemical engineering, um, electrical engineering, computer science, and so forth. Uh, But the most important thing, and and one of the things that I ask all of our new employees every Monday is, uh, for me, I go to sleep and I wake up under the same flag as everybody else. 
uh, because of the environment we're in, it's a very domestic organization. Um, the vast, vast majority of folks are U.S. citizens. And there has to be a sense of patriotism and pride for uh, building these systems. Uh, if that's not your thing, it's going to be a difficult environment to work in because you're constantly going to be comparing yourselves to yourself to some of your peers that are in very dissimilar environments. This is, again, doesn't mean one's better than the other. But if what, if what excites you is creating a technological unfair advantage for the United States and its allied nations so that we can keep the world safe, if we do intelligence and defense properly, then nations never go to war. Uh, if you if you've got the, the the appropriate show of force and the ability to see over the horizon with next generation intelligence, it is a peacekeeping mission, and we do that through the application of very advanced science and technology. If that excites you, this is probably a good place for you to work. You're gonna you're gonna see a lot of important missions, and, and we're gonna challenge you to be better than everybody else while you're here. If that's not what lights your fire, it's totally fine. There's lots of jobs out there, but that's, that I think is one of the main differences. And when we look at people with multidimensional disciplines and, and diverse backgrounds and experience, um, there's that unifying factor that is that, mm. that sense of pride around providing a patriotic, serving a patriotic mission uh, from a civilian standpoint. I think that's probably a hallmark of, of most of our folks in our field. I love that. Thank you for sharing. Uh, could you, could you tell me more about the 25% uh, veterans that you guys are, are, are having your workforce? Sure. You, you mentioned yeah. there was something else that you wanted to touch on. Well, the, it's not just that they're veterans. It's that, um, you know, we have a volunteer military. These people mm -hmm. at some point, at a young age usually, volunteered to serve their country and, and in many cases to put themselves in harm's way. If you think about the veterans, the separated veterans that we're getting today, they were involved in a 20-year war on terror in some form or fashion. Doesn't mean they were you know, storming the desert with a, with a rifle on their back, but they were involved in this important mission and many of them were deployed. Many of them were forward deployed and, and they did their duty and they served their country, but they're not done. And that was the, the other thing. So they, they have a, this sense of duty and service that they wanna continue to be involved and if you're like me, you're, you're in your 50s and no one's going to put you on the front lines with a bucket on your head and a rifle in your hands, but you still have a role to play. Yeah. And you can play a very important role. And that's what we see in many of our veterans. They're, you know, certainly not finished. And, uh, yeah. and, they, and they just have a passion for success. Yeah, the mission continues, as they say. Absolutely. Yeah. So t tell me about, so one of the things that I'm learning as as I get a little bit older, I'm 33 years old right now. Um, there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are just starting their careers or or maybe they left STEM and they're trying to get back into STEM or whatever the scenario might be. Um, could you tell me about your path to becoming the CEO and, and what that role means to you now and um, kind of the things you had to learn to get there? Or did it always come natural to you? Like, is this the position that, that you, you were meant to be in? I, I always smile when I get that question because... Uh... I didn't have a, uh, a desire to be in charge, to be the CEO, to be the head of a specific unit. Um, I was always passionate about technology. I've always, I grew up in a patriotic household. I'm passionate about serving my country. Those things were kind of table stakes for me. Um, I knew I was gonna be in a STEM field. 
I began my career, um, luckily enough, uh, with Lockheed Martin and with the designing uh, communications payload packages and, and terrestrial communication systems. And uh, I, a wonderful opportunity came along for me to join Bell Laboratories. And that was kind of, as an electrical engineer, that's kind of like the storied uh, organization that you want to be a part of. And it was really as it was separating from AT&T and going through ownership with Lucent Technologies. And, um, you know, one thing led to another where I, I, I um, found myself being uh, encouraged by a multitude of of mentors to take on more leadership positions, get exposure into the sales and marketing organization, start to take some, uh, in my master's class, start to take some um, courses in managerial accounting, really getting me outside of my wheelhouse a little bit, but enough mentors that saw something in me and said, you know, you, you ought to, you ought to try to broaden your horizons a little bit and get more, mm. get more experience. And that, that helped me a lot. Um, as I said, went into sales and marketing and and business management, planning, strategy development, and, and got a lot of exposure. Over the course of the years, uh, I get I kept finding myself with opportunities to step into more and more leadership positions, um, a research department lead, uh, a sales uh, regional manager, um, a um, what they called a SWAT team, which was an optical communications uh, focus team on capturing specific markets by by um, um, you know selling and implementing optical communication systems. You know, then moving into strategy development, business strategy, capture strategy, um, planning, and then execution all the way up through COO of a subsidiary company. And then eventually when they launched a CEO search, the board came to me and said, we would love for you to, to enter yourself into the evaluation for our, our next CEO. And I gladly did that. I felt it was an honor. Um, I was selected. This is again a, a former company, and I and uh, I was nervous as heck. I hardly got any sleep. You can ask my wife. Uh, the first few years, uh, I felt like I was constantly having to prove myself. I was you know, roughly forty years old and running a, a, almost a half billion dollar organization, and um, it was frightening. And at the same time, I learned at that point to surround myself with A players. Um, yeah. You know, make sure that I've got people that have the experience and the know-how that augment my shortcomings, my deficiencies, whether it's in style or um, personality or even technical acumen, you know, finding ways to build a really highly functional collaborative team. Mm. And that has served me exceptionally well. Um, when the opportunity came about, about a year and a half ago to join Arcfield, um, I knew what questions to ask. Uh, about the organization, about the people, where it was heading, as we carved the business out of Periton and created its own subsidiary, what was the interest of our investment group at Veritas to invest in the team, invest in the facilities, invest in the people, the technology, building a market? Were we going to be in this for the long haul? And they have long, long-term vision for how they how they invest in the business. So I felt like this go around, uh, I was a lot better positioned to know what to ask and to. Uh, um, and to make sure that, that we could really hit the ground running and, and make the best of this and, and absolutely no looking back. It's been a, a great roughly, what, 14, 15 months for me so far. That's incredible. Yeah. Congratulations. I mean, it sounds exciting. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, so uh, one of the things that 
uh, I want to ask, and I ask everyone uh, that comes on here for this uh, at Arcfield, if, if someone was interested in in looking at what jobs are available or learning more, where would they go to? Easiest thing to do is to go to arcfield.com and click on careers. You'll see that we have openings in both Canada and in the United States. And you can search by location. You can search by job function, uh, skill. Uh, there's there's a variety of different um, keywords that you can search. You can even search on specific customers. Oh, and, nice. and I would encourage people to do that. It's, um, you know, we're talking about a... Um, engineering centric, you know, STEM centric organization. Um, we do program management, we do proposals, we do technical writing, we do budgeting, we do planning. So yeah. <laughs> 1300 going on 1400 employees. We're not all engineers, thankfully. Uh, yep. we have yes. People <laughs> could need the balance. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, well, thank you for that. I'm, I'm sure there'll be some people checking it out. Um, one of the topics that we've brought up, you know, I was, 10 years old, 11 years old, when 9-11 uh, happened, you know, I lived most of my life with us at war. Um, and, you know, we're definitely entering a different phase here, uh, as, as we're in 2023. Um, Starlink has become a, you know, if we're talking about the domain of space, um, whether it wants to or not is dragging the domain of space uh, into uh, needing more military uh, intervention. Can you tell me more about, um, and, and I'm sure with your position at Arcfield, maybe there's some things you can't talk about, but when you see what Starlink has done in just the general idea of space becoming a, a domain, um, could you tell me your thoughts on where it is today and what, what you've seen that's good about it and maybe some things that could be done differently? Yeah, I think the latter part of that question is the tougher part, so I'll start with the easy part. Um... I see, you know, Starlink is a is a commercial communications service provider uh, with it with a different business model than what was traditionally envisioned for uh, overhead communications, um, bidirectional as opposed to broadcast technology as we're used to with Sirius XM and some of the broadcast uh, cable TV. Uh, Starlink is meant to be, and it is bidirectional and high data rate, highly reliable, highly available. The Antenna systems uh, aim themselves autonomously, looking for a multitude of satellites simultaneously, seeking the one with the higher gain. So if you think about um, how cellular technology grew up and you went from first generation to second generation, by the time we're in third generation, we're into digital packetized information and we're connecting to multiple antennas at the same time and the radio is making the decision about make before break and um, looking at power levels and signal to noise ratio and error rate and so forth and making the autonomous switching. And then we get into 4G, we're really into high data rate, um, doing again, multi-path communications. All of that underlying technology and some of the networking and the decisions and the algorithms have all made their way now into the space domain. It doesn't happen by accident. I made it sound very passive. Right. Um, you know, SpaceX has invested very heavily in this and have really attracted some top talent to make this happen. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm saying all this because uh, there is an evolution that brought that communications um, service and, and technology into the marketplace. It is also the great unifier, communications, open, free 
communications, not free from a dollar standpoint, but unfettered, unfiltered mm. communications. And if you think about, you know, in the, in the, um, I guess it was probably around the 2004, 2005 timeframe, I believe, when we had the, the, the Arab Spring and the uprising, and there was a, a movement globally amongst um, citizenry that were in oppressed regions, and they said, we're going we're gonna to fight back. And the first thing that their governments did in order to get control of them was to shut off the internet, shut off access to the internet filter it and if the the theory was if they can't communicate with each other they're going to have a difficult time organizing and we'll be able to to control the way people think much more effectively i said at the time as we're thinking about what weapons should be deployed to help these people gain their freedom it was obvious to me and to many the most powerful weapon that we have is the internet okay. it's access to information connect them, let them talk to each other, let them talk about freedom, let them organize. And sure, bad things happen on the internet too. Sure, they, they but, do. <laughs> yeah, but the ability for, for people to communicate and organize generally results in freedom and peace. And it's not what motivated SpaceX or Elon Musk, I'm sure, to, to create Starlink. This is a business. They're going to charge subscribers to for this service. At the same time, they made the decision, I think completely independent of the of US government, to refocus some of their assets in that region of the world to do, as I just said, to provide communications, allow people to communicate and help them be free in the end. So I give them a lot of credit for doing that. Uh, it is a game changer. Um, it's something that, frankly, the US government, anybody turns to the government when things go bad and they need help. Yeah, not set up to do this. You know, we're we're meant to connect war fighting ships with planes and logistics supply systems and, and reconnaissance systems, not to provide you know communications to the you know, to the disenfranchised or those seeking yeah. freedom. So I'm I'm glad that they're there, and I think they're going to play a very very valuable role going forward. And it seems like this partnership of you know the private side of space and the the public side of space uh, has been doing this dance the last. Five years, maybe publicly, although I'm sure there's been a lot of conversations over the last decades when shuttle was phasing out and um, we were trying to figure out what to do and what, you know, how not to lose our infrastructure, which, as as I've heard from, from many folks, including like Embedded Ventures, um, about just the, the infrastructure GPS uh, mm -hmm. is, is something that needs a lot of updating. It seems like a theme uh for everything whether it's ter terrestrial or in orbit it seems like there's a lot of things that need updating uh that have just seen time uh with our with our delay in progress here in space um is there anything infrastructure wise or um is there anything in that vein that you think is interesting or something that people haven't heard of but but needs some some attention well, you mentioned a couple of important ones, and there's the, the whole um, uh, group of solutions around PNT, pointing navigation and timing. Mm -hmm. And it's something that the military has focused on because it is at the core of ensuring availability and reliability, like we talked about earlier, once systems are on orbit, making sure that you've got uh, um, accurate telemetry data so that you can point the asset in the right direction and that you can navigate the asset in a way that that will um, ensure that it's operating efficiency efficiently and then that you have the highly precise timing that's necessary to 
to do those make before break connections and to be able to provide positional data, which is often related to timing on the spacecraft. Um, you know, when, when the early days of GPS, in the, in the early days of GPS, the whole algorithm around timing and doing time difference of arrival and triangulation for geolocation on Earth was so complicated. It wasn't conceivable that industry was going to catch up anytime soon or that an adversary would break into that system or start spoofing timing signals to throw off your navigation. But it was inevitable. It was a matter of time before that started happening. And it did start happening. So in the early days, they didn't build a lot of protections. You know, it just was, you know, space was owned by the United States at that point. And uh, the complex signal waveforms was the protection around GPS and some of the other systems. That's not the case anymore. So there has been a lot of advancements in doing pointing navigation and timing in a denied environment. So what if someone's jamming those frequencies in space? What if they're jamming them on Earth? What if they're spoofing it? Is there any kind of checksum that we can envision that that ensures the that, that gives the receiver the assurance that the signal it's receiving is the correct one and not one that has been, you know, spoofed in any way. So, um, you know, I'm happy to say that obviously people didn't wait for these failures before they started designing solutions. Yeah. But it's something that many people just take for granted. Oh, I have to get there. I'll just open up my phone and, and uh, use use the GPS on my phone. You know, what if it's not there? What if it's fake? You know, how how yeah. how disastrous would that be? And now put yourself in a mission critical environment. That's just something that, again, I think a lot of people take for granted that they don't realize uh, is a heavy investment area uh, in the national security area. Let's take a break to talk about our other sponsor, which is our own 3D printing lab for Today in Space, AG 3D Printing. Uh, this is the lab that spawned from this podcast. It was an idea, you know, as I was learning how to be a science communicator and kind of diving into other exciting things in the STEM field, I found 3D printing and I slowly started a lab and a parts business uh, where we help bring your ideas into reality with 3D printing. Um, we are really good at what we do and we can help you from all sides of the project, whether you're like a student and you're, maybe your 3D printing lab doesn't have what you need or it's busy and there's no room or, or you're just looking to create an idea. Uh, maybe you've got an idea for a business or something that's helpful around the house, a replacement part for something that's not made anymore. 3D printing is so useful for custom solutions to things that are just really not available or not made anymore. It's a great tool. Uh, it's a it's a great tool for those using the iterative process, right? If you want to develop an idea like our friends at Snapcaller, they had an idea where they wanted to transform the, the collared shirt game and make it so that, you know, your collared sh your collar and your shirt stays like it's supposed to, sharp and crisp. Uh, and we went through many iterations, uh, but quickly and and under a budget that two guys who are trying to start a, a business while also doing their day job. Like we are here to help those types of folks. And of course we 3d print stuff for the podcast all the time. We've got some new things coming up. I'm getting uh, into two cosplays this year uh, for myself. So um, the lab is humming and there's lots of filament being pushed through those nozzles. So <laughs> uh, if you're looking to 
get some 3D printing projects done, head over to ag3d-printing.com to check out what we're about. You can get a free quote on your project. You can literally just reach out to us, even if you just have an idea written down on a napkin, or you've done it a bunch of times and you just need some extra help printing something. Uh, that's what we're here for. And you can also support us by going to our Etsy shop at ag3dprinting.etsy.com. That's where we have all of our designs available, where we 3D print on demand. These parts don't get made until you order them. Uh, Otherwise, they sit as plastic. But if you're looking to support us and get a cool gift, uh, or maybe you have an idea that you'd like us to put up there, we've got a ton of stuff, especially if you're a space fan. We have our James Webb Space Telescope coasters. We're going to be selling our own model of the James Webb Space Telescope soon. That'll be 3D printed on there. Um, we also have our uh, our rocket pens that we're slowly designing, a Falcon 9, a, a Starship. So there's lots of ways to help support us. Uh, AG3Dprinting.etsy.com is the way you can do it right now. If you're trying to do something for yourself, we're here to help bring that idea into reality with our 3D Printing Lab AG3D. So... Thank you to AG3D, I'm thanking myself here, but that is what originally was paying the bills here for this podcast, keeping the lights on, the mics running, and you know now uh, we also have sponsors like Manscaped, so it's cool to have this commercial still be here, um, we're very excited about all the stuff we do with AG3D printing, and it keeps us busy, and it helps us do more things, like go to rocket launches and see cool stuff, like we did over the summer last summer for uh, Artemis 1. So, EG 3D printing, check it out. We've got a lot of exciting stuff for you this year, but we've rambled on too long. Back to our conversation with Kevin Kelly, the CEO of Arcfield. Thanks. And as we start getting closer and closer to, you know, Artemis 3 and mm-hmm. sending the first humans back to the moon, uh, we have a legitimate application in real life where the infrastructure is not there. And we're building it actively. Um, I <laughs> I was thinking, um, I'm working on a segment. Uh, we're going to just talk about big picture ideas of living in space. And that's one of the realities that we have to kind of get around. And it's, it's kind of a good excuse, you know, knock on wood, everything goes well. With Artemis, um, we're ideally setting up the big picture goal of living in space full time. Um, are there any technologies or infrastructure that you can think of that doesn't uh, is 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 very much needed, but is just not there yet that that people should know about? This is going to sound a little weird. I'll start with one that's not weird, and then I'll move to the weird. Okay. So um, the not weird one, the the choke point in space communications is usually the uplink and the downlink. It's the slowest link, and it is where um, communications gets it's really challenged and you need to do some active filtering because the, again, the, the pipes going up and down, whether they're RF or optical, typically is where your choke, choke point is. I know Artemis is flying several, the first, first um, demonstration um, satellites are gonna fly some, um, some, some demonstration payloads to do optical communications, high-speed optical communications from lunar orbit to back to the earth which is very doable today. Um, and it, it came at decades worth of investment in photonics, high, high-powered optical photonics for space-based communication. Um, that's something that's easy for folks to understand, but simply did not exist um, in the Mercury and Apollo era. We all saw the grainy footage and it was delayed coming back and so forth. It is conceivable that we will be watching high-definition live video from the moon 
using optical downlink. The only way it can happen is with optical downlinks, and uh, that that is a not so future technology. Meaning it has been it has been demonstrated very successfully in space. So I'm excited to see that. Um, here's the weird one. Um, you're talking about living in space. We're mammals. Certain body functions require gravity, and mm. um, as you think about the humans on the space station and having to mimic as much as they can the gravitational forces for you know to maintain cellular mitosis and cellular reproduction and things oh, like that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It has been a challenge, and they come back changed people right after a year. Now think about two years, five years, ten years. You know, mimicking the gravitational forces without doing the, you know, the, the right. centrifugal wheel or something like that. Um, I think it's going to be a real challenge. I'm, I'm both excited and also very curious to see how we're going to do this. Yeah, same. That's a, uh, I mean, every function you're you're pretty much putting a variable on. Um, one mm -hmm. of the things I mix, I don't, I haven't heard of one yet, but, but that I'm excited about is. Um, you know, different kinds of sports developing, you know, they're, they're basically running marathons up there on, on the ISS on a regular basis. And um, to, to think about there being a, a moon sport or a, like an orbital sport is kind of a cool idea. And I wonder what that's going to look like. <laughs> you, you know, it's coming. I mean, so yeah. much, so much <laughs> money and innovation has been poured into to sports and entertainment. You know, it's a matter of time. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's going to be crazy. And you know, uh, one of the things that I'm hopeful for, but I I always take with a grain of salt because I don't see much development and that's Blue Origin and say Orbital Reef and you know they they smartly so run with a cape uh over over a lot of what they're doing um so that gives them a good advantage when they're actually are ready to put things out um but also t it seems like it takes longer space development takes many many years but mm -hmm. um with their Orbital Reef platform and kind of uh, commercializing a lot of the stuff that's been um, like say the ISS like you know we've got some ideas but nobody's really you know commercializing that um, that's going to be necessary before we have a base on the moon um, so in in that perspective when I think about cybersecurity and automation I think that there's there's some real real advantages to automating the things that these test pilots and astronauts are testing and making them uh, like you don't have to think about it's being taken care of um, thinking about that is there anything that that gets you excited about where AI and and cybersecurity can take us when we start actually living in space on a regular basis yeah I uh, AI is, is appearing in just about everything that we do in, in every in every uh, form and factor of, of life, and um, it just um, as as we as we bathe ourselves in more and more information, the the uh, the need for autonomous processing and the development of of um, artificial intelligence is um, I, I think just as a as table stakes now it's it's a, it's embedded in everything that's it's kind of a general you know cop on the answer to what you're saying I, <laughs> I don't see i don't see the world getting simpler when we move yeah. into the space mm -hmm. and and you know as we are embedding artificial intelligence and um systems capable of of, malear of learning and improving efficiency and just about everything that we do even just in conventional business intelligence 
monitoring the metrics of a supply chain or a business and having to do that autonomously in order to create additional efficiencies, mm. it's everywhere. And if, and if you think about the variables of living in space and, and uh, all of the scientific experimentation that, that will likely be um, uh, part of that, as well as the, uh, just the need to monitor um, very complex systems that are, that are potentially in a dynamic changing environment, it's at least in as in terms of what we know today, um, both AI and, and machine learning have, have to be a significant part of that future. Mm. And I, I'm interested in the in how these AI are being trained. Um, you know, I'm still very much learning, but I get to talk to folks like yourself um, and and kind of throw ideas out there and see if if I'm at least on the on the right path. But you know, we're learning with these language models that uh, they they do have limitations um, and things that, you know, when we live in the age of mis-dis, mal-information, you know, we now have this amazing technology that can accidentally lie to us and not even realize that, that they are. Um, and so I think the training is going to be really important. I'm excited about what NASA could create because I'm sure their training would be uh, high end and and you know folks that would be working with them would be would be doing that well but i think there's also going to be room for ai that's not really that good um but because it's ai and because it's uh, uh the thing right now it's going to get used um what, what do you think about that i think you're you're absolutely right i'll give i'll give you a perfect analogy i have a um a self-driving vehicle that is it's a it's not a tesla it's a mercedes Mm. Um, but it uses a similar technology and I can hop on the highway in the morning and, and set it so that it uh, maintains um, a certain speed, doesn't go over a certain speed. I can have it read the speed limit sign and change its speed autonomously. It'll change lanes to avoid an accident. It'll pull over if it thinks I'm asleep or I'm somehow oh, wow. attentive. Uh, it'll do lots of things. It's not as good as a human. It's yeah. not even as good as a bad driver. So, um, it's really important that we use, I, I use it to augment my driving, meaning um, I do team driving. I, I talk, I call my car Hilda. There's a whole different podcast for that. Um, uh, so Hilda and I share the driving and um, um, I, I'm perfectly okay with the autonomy doing speed control and making suggestions to keep me in the center of the lane. I'm going to make the lane changes, even though the computer's capable of doing it. I frankly, yeah. I'm observing more and I'm processing more than the machine is able to do, not because of the compute power, but because despite the fact that the car has, I don't know, 30, 40 sensors, I still have more sensors. Yeah. And I've seen a lot more and I've learned a lot more. Mm. To your point around learning, um, there's not a real good feedback mechanism in a lot of these AI systems, and they're only as smart as the code allowed them to be initially some some are learning faster that's that's what we that's what we've seen but but the the majority of them re, uh, operate somewhat independently and they don't have a good feedback mechanism like my car so it's not going to become a better driver over time mm. yeah that's a great example um yeah the for me what i'm looking for automation to do is to uh to allow me to spend more time being creative and spending mm -hmm. less time doing, you know, executive things. And 
uh, or just like simple, for instance, uh, like transcribing this podcast is going to be done by AI for me. And that just takes out a huge portion of it. And it's not going to be perfect. And that's okay. I don't need it to be perfect. I'm looking for like, what's the map of the episode? Where can we get some clips? Um, and, and for me, that's really valuable. Um, there's other things like intellectual property issues where, you know, allegedly some of these, you know, art based AI have, have basically trained entire, uh, entire AIs based on someone else's work that they're not getting anything for that. And it's just out there now. Um, I've heard some other things of allegedly some audiobook artists who, you know, signed away their, their rights to their voice early in the day. And, and now entire, you know, uh, uh, voice AI is going to be used for them and they, they see none of that. So it's a, it, it's gold rush esque, just like, uh, NFTs were recently. Um, and I, I think it's going to get weird. It's definitely going to get weirder before it gets, uh, uh, better. Um, but is there anything that's a good mindset for folks who are just trying to wrap their heads around this that you might be able to like offer and and how you approach it because I love your idea of like sharing the driving I think that's a healthy mindset but I think it's tough uh, for people to start there. You know, it's it, what what came to mind as you were walking through that is uh, when we started finding the need to apply artificial intelligence and specifically you know that in combination with machine learning or the you know, processing and, and the intelligence is developed over time. Um, it came about in my world, in my professional world, because our collection capabilities kept increasing year after year after year. And if you think about the, you know, the RF or the imagery vacuum cleaner in space, it's just collecting everything. Eventually you run out of processing power with all the supercomputers and all the brain power on earth. And, and you're overwhelmed with information. And so you had to create a, a, an artificial intelligence layer to start processing and doing pre-processing and saying, here are actually the five things you need to look at, the other 10,000 things you can ignore for the time being. And so we created that artificial intelligence layer. Now think about what you said. What is the artificial intelligence? If, if you sign away your voice rights, what's it doing? If you're, if you're you know, um, if you're using the, you know, um, the, the chat program that's creating, you know, all kinds of confusion and, and concern around the internet, um, what are those systems doing? They're actually creating more content, which was the reason that they were invented in the first place was to, to deal with the overwhelming information overload, wow. right? The big data problem. And what are these systems doing? They're actually creating more data. And so it's starting to accelerate. The amount of data creation is starting to accelerate. And, and when you think about, you know, have I created a solution to a problem or have I created a brand new problem? Yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, just as you're saying that my concern immediately was, is the infrastructure going to get overloaded and choked out if we start like, like a, like a, like a DDoS attack, like, are we going to overwhelm uh, the amount of stuff that's there and just choke out the internet? That's, that's, that's crazy. It's a valid question. And your, and your question about authenticity, just because I saw it 10 times doesn't mean it's correct. Yeah. But I did see it 10 times and one, one, one system created or one person created it and then nine of them mimicked it. And all of a sudden it's, it's viewed as fact and it may not be maybe yeah. completely false. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> that's a topic that, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I started the podcast was just to, um, try and 
create like talk about complex things but try and do it in the simplest of ways we don't always succeed at that but that was that was the attempt and like this definitely makes things harder i'm not gonna <laughs> i'm not gonna lie um so it you know getting sharper you know, i don't want something technical or, or stem based to become magic because i think that's the that is the that's the dark side i think of stem is when it gets to that point um so being able to, to speak with folks like yourself um and to kind of break this down is is always always much appreciated sure yeah um if, any, if, if you yeah if you're worried about it becoming magic just go back to my uh, self-driving car analogy uh, if, if you put complete faith in those systems, and unfortunately you see stories on the news where people have done that, it will yeah. fail you. It will yeah. fail you. And, um, you know, we, 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 we don't give ourselves enough credit for uh, taking advantage of a lifetime of experience and knowledge when making decisions and being analytical and synthetic uh, or um, uh, synthesizing data. It's, you know, the, the, the human brain is absolutely amazing when you think you've, you've started to replace it with the computer, I would argue even as powerful as they are today, you're only talking about a fraction of, you know, the, the average compute power of the human brain. So yeah. um, don't, don't put your faith in it. Use it, <laughs> as a, use it as a tool. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. And then I think we're in the process of getting people first attuned to the idea that it is a tool to be used and then you can have kind of the moral thing that you know a tool can be good or bad it's mm -hmm. just it's who uses it and how you use it yeah well kevin thank you so much for uh this conversation this has been great uh i let's close out with any any final thoughts anything we missed that we should touch on any last words for the folks out there um, I'll speak to, you talked about people that were, uh, early in their, in their STEM career and, and they, they may be, you know, avid listeners and which is completely understandable of your, um, podcast. Um, my encouragement is to, because STEM can be applied in you know, I don't know, a thousand different ways, even, even within a specific discipline, find what makes you passion, find what, find something that, that gets you up in the morning and, um, and that you're going to want, you, you mentioned, you know, having the time to be more creative, find something that allows you to apply your own creativity and your own brand to, to what it is that, that um, um, you know, that, that matches your technical interests and follow that. I, I, it, it uh, troubles me when I see folks who've invested so much time and effort in uh, obtaining uh, their, their excellence and their, and their uh, um, academic, you know, acumen and proficiency in a specific discipline and then say I, I never really wanted to do that and then they and then they go find something else to do there are more ways than you can imagine to apply those technical that technical knowledge and experience and what i tell particularly when i tell engineers that are that are graduating with their undergrad you have you have been given the and you have earned the the fundamental knowledge and experience that will allow you to go to the next step. And it's all about exploration and personal development and professional development at this point. So keep your eyes and, and, and ears open to opportunity and be open to trying things that you think might be completely different than what you imagined yourself doing. And I think you'll find it to be very rewarding and, uh, and uh, you'll, you'll, you'll find that groove. And when you do, that's when you're really gonna see your performance and your happiness kind of rise at the same level just a little bit of personal and, and uh, you know emotional advice 
No, thank you for that. I I definitely uh, say that 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 does work. I mean, that's part of the reason why this podcast exists, uh, and why I work in three D printing because I found mm -hmm. that you know that inter intersection of three um, D printing in space, especially for like in space manufacturing. I mean, to me, that's the the ultimate uh, uh, crossing of the streams for me, and and where I'm I'm seeing things. So. Um, it, it, and what's interesting and why this segment exists and why we're talking today is to provide those examples. You know, I, you know, I, there are a lot of people who are in the STEM field who have family or had someone else they knew that worked in that, but there's also many people who didn't. And mm -hmm. so they, they go into it without the idea of what jobs are actually out there and what careers are there. And then you get stuck because you've, you only see, you, you don't know what's out there. Um, so thank you for sharing your story today. I really do appreciate it. I appreciate the interest and, uh, good, good luck with the podcast. It's, it's, I think it's a great product. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Uh, it means a lot coming from you. Um, Kevin, thank you for joining us. Uh, this is today in space. Thank you for being one of our people of science. Uh, make sure to spread love and spread science and we'll, we'll see you on the next episode. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye-bye.